Hey, welcome to the uh, Glenn Beck program. It is the podcast today. We've got a lot. We have very controversial Mike Lee on. He's normally <laughs> not controversial, but he is today. He was very upset about um, the briefing that he got in Congress. We talked to him about that. Uh, and, and also, where does he stand on President Trump? It's not what you're going to hear from the rest of the media. Uh, there's... This is an an interview worth listening to uh, all the way through. Also, Ian Bremmer is with us. The risks of 2020. What are the things that he sees sees over the horizon this year? And was America a Christian founding? Are we a Christian-based country? (gasps) A professor from Oregon actually chimes in. Don't miss it. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. We have Senator Mike Lee uh, on the phone with us now, who is um, uh, is either loved or hated by so many, and I think misunderstood in this particular case. Uh, Senator, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Glenn. Good to sure. be with you as always. So, Mike, you are not. Uh, saying that the president shouldn't have gotten Soleimani or that he hasn't handled this right. That's correct. Right? You're for that. I I, I have not spoken out against the attack on Soleimani. Uh, What I am concerned about is where we go from here. Correct. I want to make sure that any subsequent military action against Iran is carried out only through the constitutional formula, which is through a declaration of war, or an authorization for the use of military force. And this is something... I think the president wants the same. I think the president wants to follow the Constitution. I commend the president. I support the president. This president has been actually the most respectful and the most restrained in in his use of military power as commander-in-chief, more so than any other president in my lifetime. I agree with that. And I respect him for that. Unfortunately, some of those around him seem to be uh, coming from a slightly different place, and that worries me. I was shocked because I felt exactly the same way about President Trump. I, I was really proud of the way he has restrained himself. He, you know, he didn't go and, and lob missiles after they took down our drone. You know, they've, they've, they've captured our sailors, et cetera, et cetera. And he really didn't do any of the things that I think other uh, presidents would have done and yet he didn't look weak, and he just drew the line of, you kill our people, and that's a different story. He drops the bomb. This all goes fairly well as of today, goes fairly well. Um, but I was shocked, Mike, to hear on television all of the people from the right that were saying, we got to bomb their oil fields, we've got to go after them. No, 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 no. We don't want no. that. We, we don't want that, and President Trump doesn't want that. And look, this is the one of the many reasons I have endorsed his reelection. One of the reasons why I'm the co-chair of his reelection campaign in my home state of Utah is because I, I think he has shown tremendous restraint as commander in chief, and it's one of the things I love about him. He wants desperately to not get us involved in unnecessary, unconstitutional, undeclared wars throughout the world. And so it worries me when I see some people around him uh, making arguments that are consistent with those that have been made over the course of many decades, 
that have driven a wedge between the American people and the war power. The war power is supposed to belong in the people's branch, which is Congress, because it's the branch of government most accountable to the people at the most regular intervals. Okay, now wait a minute. I want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing, because it's my understanding that the way the world works, it is so fast, and it was it's like this in the Constitution. The president has the right to strike, but then he's got to go to Congress within 30 days and get a, a War Powers uh, Act passed so we have a declaration of, of war. Otherwise, all the military have to come home and everything else because you hold the purse. Yeah, that's right. The president has the president has the power inherently under Article two to order a strike that is discreet and that is necessary in order to repel an actual or imminent attack. Uh, But, you know, further actions, a sustained military effort, something that would qualify as an act of war does, in fact, require congressional authorization. And that's uh, what they need to obtain. So I you, think the president agrees with me on that. I just think some of those surrounding him, advising him and advising Congress on behalf of the executive branch yesterday are, are not adequately taking that into account. Yeah, I, I think the American people need to be very careful because we, we hear everything in black and white now. And there are extremists on both sides. There are people uh, in Washington that I hear, and I think they are actually their hatred and their politics against uh, Trump are so strong, it's almost like they want us to lose. They want us to, uh, I mean, they're standing behind terrorists. It's crazy. And on the other side, there are extremists that want us to go to war with Iran. I think the average American person is like, look, if you kill our people, you hit them, you hit them hard, you move on, and we don't have to go to war with Iran. It's not the right idea. I think that's where the average person is. But the politics in Washington, which brings me to this question. How can you said uh, yesterday, which I completely agree with you, um, you said, uh, you know, it's our we have to debate. It's un-American. And the people that were advising Trump and advising you and, and informing you on what was going on, you said, came in and said, don't. Don't debate this because it will empower Iran. And I agree with them. However, I also agree with you that that's your job. You have to do that. We're, we're not a dictatorship. We have to have that debate. However, in this particular uh, time period, do you really think, Mike, we could get honest debate on the floor? I mean, I'm not saying we stop debate, but I just don't think that there's there's honest debate now. Anything that Donald Trump does. Look, we could and we should. And under the War Powers Act, we can and we must have that debate. The Constitution requires us to have it. And if we get ever get to the point where we can get mired into a global conflict or a war of any kind and, and Congress says, oh, we can't possibly handle that. then we've got a major problem with yes, Congress. I agree. But uh, look, we do have procedural mechanisms through the War Powers Act to advance debate on this issue. There are some people who are fond of saying, well, the War Powers Act is unconstitutional. Look, the War Powers Act doesn't fundamentally change the balance of power between the executive branch and the legislative branch. All it does is provide a schedule, a timeline by which members of Congress can advance certain arguments for an up or down vote 
on signaling our approval or lack thereof of a particular military action. That's exactly what the Constitution expects of us, and we should do it. The problem is uh, people are hearing you today, and we're living in such a black and white world. You were saying this under Obama, and you were saying this privately uh, about the War Powers Act uh, under, under Bush. This is something that is not about Donald Trump. You've, you were leading the fight uh, on, uh, on Yemen. We're in Yemen. What are we doing in Yemen? Fighting a war. It needs- Barack Obama got us involved in Yemen through executive action without bothering to go to Congress. That has continued for several years, not with, notwithstanding the fact that it was never declared by Congress, notwithstanding the fact that it's unconstitutional to do it that way, notwithstanding the fact that the American people have no national security interest. They are not made safer by our involvement as a co-belligerent in the Saudi-led uh, coalition uh, effort against the Houthi rebels in Yemen. And so uh, that's what I'm saying here is that I, I was consistent in previous administrations on this. I'm being consistent under President Trump. And President Trump himself, I believe, agrees with us. That is that the president himself shouldn't be free to get us involved in a war. He does power belongs to the people's branch in Congress. He is so anti-war. He's barely a conservative uh, or, a, a, or a Republican uh, on that front, when you Important look at distinction there, by the way, Glenn, uh, because yeah. one is anti-war because one is a conservative. Yes. Uh, being anti-war uh, means one is a conservative. It doesn't undermine it. Correct. Unfortunately, the Republican Party has at times deviated from that standard and has uh, drifted more toward the direction of Woodrow Wilson. Yes. Show me a war so that I can get involved in it, so that I can build government. That's wrong. Um, so, so, Mike. Um, where is this where is this headed the house votes today on uh, restraining the president from doing things and i believe that that is mainly political uh in the house um so what, what you said that you wanted to know which way to vote and you were looking at yesterday and the the people who came over to brief you were the worst that you've ever seen uh, and and were they saying that you had to vote with them or just not discuss it? Or what was it that they said? And and what do what are you planning on doing? Well, the most important and the most troubling thing that they said was that they refused to commit to any set of circumstances in which they would be required to come back and seek authorization from Congress before undertaking additional acts against Iran. They wanted to hold open the possibility that almost anything, uh, even right down to taking down the Supreme Leader, uh, might be authorized either uh, under their inherent authority under Article 2 or under the 2002 authorization for the use of military force or otherwise, and that they might not necessarily have to come back to Congress. I think that's inexcusable. And and there was a suggestion in there also that we shouldn't be debating it, that we shouldn't have this discussion because that might embolden Iran and it might make us look weak. Look, this is the whole reason the Founding Fathers put this thing in Article 1, Section 8, the whole reason they put it in Congress. They didn't want to have the executive capable of getting us into a war. President Trump doesn't disagree with that. In fact, I believe he agrees with the Founding Fathers' decision to do that. And that's why I think he was ill-served yesterday by those briefing the Senate. So, Mike, I, I really do agree with you. I just want to play devil's advocate here one, uh, one more time. The founders, when they did this, 
could not be heard in the capitals of of our enemies live and also uh did not have a world that was controlled by a a state department uh and uh and manipulated in the media as it is today you do see the point that and i'm not saying we don't debate but you do understand the point that the debate especially if it becomes political does uh send the message that we are not all on the same page it does and that is precisely the point of the war power being put in Article 1, Section 8, and being a power of Congress. It's a feature, not a bug, to require debate and careful deliberation in the public eye before going to war. The Founding Fathers never wanted or intended it to be easy to get involved in a war. It's part of how we stay out of war. There are, moreover, uh, more than adequate means of dealing with the modern realities that you describe without thwarting the Constitution. The president has inherent power to repel an actual or imminent attack on the United States. The president also has certain power to order uh, special operations teams uh, to go in outside the War Powers Act process uh, and strike in a more clandestine fashion. Neither of those is impaired uh, by this kind of debate and discussion about whether we should go into war. Uh, we haven't had a war declaration since 1942. That's right. It's a problem. Right. It, it is a problem, and it shows this gradual decline over the last 80 years away from the constitutional framework and in a direction that allows for the consolidation of power. I've been against that in previous administrations. I'm against that in this administration, which is headed by a president who agrees with me. Senator Mike Lee. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, And uh, I I commend you for your bravery of standing up and being consistent, uh, no matter where the arrows come from. Keep up the good work, Mike. The best of the Glenn Beck program. Hey, it's Glenn, and you're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. If you like what you're hearing on this show, make sure you check out Pat Gray Unleashed. It's available wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Hello, Stu. Mr. Beck, how are you? Well, I'm a little upset about Meghan Markle and and Prince Harry. I I don't know what to do. You're oddly interested in that story. I am, because of tradition, because of history. I think history is about to change. I think when uh, the Queen dies, I think the... The royal family is probably over. And that might be a good thing, but I just, you know, I, I'm I'm a conservative. I like to conserve the best parts of of things <laughs> right, and get rid the, of the... There's not, a, there's not a, any, any argument for me, at least, to conserve the monarchy. Like, let it, <laughs> let no, it go I mean, away I, forever. Yeah, I mean, because it's not my country, yeah. I, can, I don't care about what they spend. You know what I mean? No. I like... Oh, well, you're spending, wow, $3 million for that wedding. Oh, and $3 million to uh, to remodel their house. Oh, wow, okay. I don't really care. I mean, If I, can... I was over there, I'd be absolutely against this monarchy. Yeah, yeah I would want the whole thing gone, though. Yeah. But uh, their actions, I don't know how. I, like, to me, it's just a, well, we're, we have a giant sinkhole of money that we're going to throw. We're going to throw a bunch of money into a pit every year so we can say we have a queen. Right. Like that's essentially the entire part of this. Like none of it doesn't mean anything anymore. Um, and I come at this as a person who watched every single episodes episode of Suits. I love Suits. It's like my favorite show. 
and Meghan Markle was on Suits. And I still don't really care about what she's doing right now. Well, okay. I mean, that's... I agree that, with that's that. A high There's, bar. Uh, that's a high bar. It's <laughs> hard to pass. Uh, I've watched every episode of The Crown. Ah, mm. see. Mm-hmm. This is what happens. Yeah, this is what happens. <laughs> I actually like show. Elizabeth a lot. I hate the rest of the family, mm-hmm. but I like Queen Elizabeth a lot. I think she's an amazing woman um, who's done an amazing thing. To try. I mean, think of this. She is, A, the longest-running monarch uh, in all of English history. Um, and she has weathered this. I mean, when she grew up, people in England in the upper class were still dressing for dinner. You know, now everybody's going to McDonald's in the upper class, you know, (laughs) Uh, and she's weathered this storm and hasn't been chased out on a rail or people screaming for their heads or a bloody revolution. She's remarkable on what she's done. And maybe the time for monarchies are over, and I think so. I like it as a tourist. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like it just to... We like it like we... Hey, I want to make the, the guard laugh at Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Like that's the level of interest that we have. Exactly typically. right. I mean, I just... What happens so Bucking, Buckingham Palace go away and then the, we can't make faces at the guard? What happens when she I'm dies? I'm pretty sure it turns into a mall and they throw a Cinnabon inside, <laughs> right. which is... But, it improves almost any building. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But I, the problem is, is I, I just don't... Uh, when when you see, there, I'm really torn on this because you got uh, Prince Charles who looks like he's going to be actually getting the crown, which is crazy. Camilla, nobody likes the two of them. Then you have Andrew with Epstein. <laughs> I mean, there's there's nobody yeah. likable. I feel like Andrew, he couldn't even get a birthday party put through. <laughs> right. I don't think he's getting right. the, I mean, the. So then you have, I don't know, the older one who's not Harry. What's you mean name? physically or you mean name-wise? Name-wise. Mm-hmm. And maybe physically, too. I don't know. But he's not hair. The hairless the, one. The one that, yeah, the hairless one mm-hmm. is, uh, he's he's after Charles. Well, Markle has broken up their relationship. I mean, the two brothers of Princess Diana, uh, you know, are the two sons. Megan, they're broken up. Megan Markle's just finishing the job we started back in 1776. All right? We're going to break that, she that, really that, is. that whole She's crown She's almost up. like an American colonial coming in and breaking the whole thing mm-hmm. up get and ready he, you let it happen uh, great britain yeah and yeah. i feel sorry for harry because nobody's noticing that what he's seeing is that his wife is becoming his mother this is the best of the glenn beck program Hey, it's Glenn, and if you like what you hear on the program, you should check out Pat Gray Unleashed. His podcast is available wherever you download your favorite podcast. Hi, it's Glenn. If you're a subscriber to the podcast, can you do us a favor and rate us on iTunes? If you're not a subscriber, become one today and listen on your own time. You can subscribe on iTunes. Thanks. I love this. Democratic insiders are now telling the front runners, hey, can you guys stop looking like you're Iran's lawyers? Uh, they said uh, they want to avoid any sense that they are looking like they are in favor of Iran. Uh, horses out of that barn. Uh, and they also need to explain what they would do differently. It can't simply be just rejoin the Iran deal. It can't be come home, America. Come home, America wasn't a great theme for George McGovern in 72, and it's not likely to work any better in 2020. I think they're facing another George McGovern kind of loss. 
I really do. I, I just don't. I, at this point, everything could change. But at this point, I can't imagine Americans saying, yeah, yeah, we got to. We got to go with these these people and the socialist and radical ideas that they have, because I don't think America lives there. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it seems like the the McGovern style victories have only occurred with pretty with with presidents with incredibly high po- uh, popularity ratings. I mean, you know, Nixon's you know approval ratings were incredibly high before mm-hmm. Watergate. Mm-hmm. Reagan was coming into the real meat of the success of his administration, The Morning for America. Uh, with against Dukakis, you have that sort of background that that seems to be sort of the, the pattern for that. Trump has had a lot of success with the economy. Uh, this most recent incident with Iran is, I think, you know, worked out well. The ISIS thing was, was there's been a lot of success stories, but still his approval rating is, you know, 41, 42 percent. Uh, and, you know, polling kind of shows a very close race. Sometimes he's behind every once in a while he's ahead, but it's, you know, a pretty tight race. Very polarized public. Almost nothing that's happened. All these big stories has moved his approval rating more than two or three points his entire administration. He's had the most consistent approval ratings of any president that's in a crazy. really long time. And you think of the way that the coverage has been against him. It's amazing they haven't been able to knock that down. But that doesn't necessarily, at least the science right now, I don't think you know, points towards a, a massive victory. Like yeah. that. I don't even know if that's possible today. I think we almost are too polarized for it even to occur. Maybe. Or with anybody. Maybe. But uh, I just sense Democrats are tired of this, too. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. Like listening to this podcast? If you're not a subscriber, become one now on iTunes. And while you're there, do us a favor and rate the show. Ian Bremmer is uh, with us now. He's the president and founder of the Eurasia Group, leading global political risk research and consulting firm. Uh, The uh, economist says he's a rising guru uh, in the field of political risk, and we're glad to have him here. And Ian, I have to tell you, I'm I'm a fan of Mike Lee and... um, uh, Mike Lee was against the president when he was running, and then he was for him after he did a few things. Yesterday, he came out and said it was a horrible briefing, and uh, the, no president should have just war powers unlimited. And he's being branded today as as anti-Trump. No, it's a thinking human being. I can be for some things and against other things. And I appreciate that about you coming out yesterday and saying... I don't I'm not a Trump supporter, but good job on this Iran thing. Thank you. <laughs> you think that, that would be a fairly sensible position to be able to take. But as you know, and as you just said, it's uh, it's becoming more challenging. I was heartened that actually the, the interview that I did on CNN um, that was, you know, sort of as all this was coming down the pike on Monday morning. Um, was then picked up and promoted and talked about on Fox News, and I, it's it's just so rare that that actually happens in a sensible way. Yeah. Um, because because there's just so much of two completely separate countries and two completely separate bubbles, 
um, in digesting different information and news and deciding that they have a team. And if you're not on the team, it doesn't really matter whether you do something that's smart uh, right. or good. It, you know, I mean, like, would I have supported Obama if he had had the same uh, – if he had killed um, uh, Soleimani and the Iranians had responded with nothing and let's please talk? Of course I would have. Yep. It had nothing to do with who the president is. So, right, you know, right. Good for you. you are. It is shocking that I have to thank you for that, but uh, uh, let me point out that <laughs> you're a thinking human being still, and those are rare. Um, so looking at the report that was released on Monday from your group, um, you're looking at the top risks for 2020. Do, do, do you put Iran in the top risk at all? Uh, we, we put it uh, – we had a broad risk about uh, what we called Shia crescendo uh, of, of challenges uh, to stability in both uh, Syria, Iraq, and Iran as risk number eight towards the bottom of the list. But Iran itself was uh, considered a red herring, uh, that uh, actually it was going to be talked up a lot. People are going to say we're going to war, and we didn't buy any of it. And uh, we got a lot of pushback. I changed my New Year's resolution um, as a consequence to uh, just trying to convince people that World War III is not imminent. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, here we are. It was crazy. I mean, look, there's no question Iran is still a very serious uh, adversary Mm -hmm. of the United States in the region. That's not that it didn't change overnight. um, But we have now established uh, a real deterrent. They have now backed down, and there is a window of opportunity for negotiations. I mean, so much so that the likelihood of negotiations uh, being pursued between the U.S. and Iran directly this year, in my view, are greater than a resumption of military conflict Mm. directly between the two sides. And I think that's quite something to say. So you say the number one risk for 2020 in the U.S. is who governs the U.S., Uh, Quoting, in 2020, U.S. institutions will be tested as never before, and November election will produce a result many will see as illegitimate. If Trump wins amid credible charges of irregularities, the result will be contested. If he loses, particularly if the vote is close, it will be the same. Either scenario would create months of lawsuits in a political vacuum, but... Unlike the contested Bush-Gore 20, uh, or 2000 election, the loser is unlikely to accept a court-decided outcome as legitimate. That's frightening. You know, it's, it's not the end of democracy. It's not like the United States is about to become Hungary or Turkey. Uh, it's not like our institutions are going to break. But I do think that we're going to – I mean, the, the equivalent is Brexit, right? And, and not, the, not the Brexit reality that's coming at the end of January, but rather what happened after they voted, which is that the people that lost said, no, we want another vote. We, this wasn't acceptable. You didn't tell us what this was all about. This was illegitimate. And so for three years, you had the Brits tearing each other up at the exception, at the expense of getting any legislation done, of actually governing, of actually leading. Um, and I, I fear that we're entering a period like that in the United States. Uh, again, the U.K. institutions are still there. Uh, the Royals took a beating over the last few days. But leaving yeah. that aside, the institutions are still there. Uh, they're still a democracy. They still function. But, my God, they, they showed themselves as being completely incapable of governing for a period of time. And I think that coming out of the 2020 elections, we're likely to have that kind of a broken election process. But that wasn't uh, – Bre- Brexit wasn't broken because there was 
a big scandal of uh, possible rigging of an election one way or another. What they were saying was, uh, well, we're we're not going to we're just not going to do that because, you know, that's just not the right thing to do. They weren't listening to the people. Um, And and that was the real problem in Brexit. If if there is a scandal that goes along with this in one way or another, that's different than the Brexit thing, isn't it? Yes. Yes, certainly how we get there is completely different. Yeah. I was just talking about what it would feel like in okay. the United States. So we weren't talking about revolution, you know. Um, no, how we get there in the United States is we have an impeachment. Um, says the president has been impeached. He will be acquitted. Um, and he will be acquitted despite having, in my view, um, having committed crimes, abusing power um, to swing the election in his favor. Um, so impeachment will be broken as um, a restraint on the president as he seeks reelection this so, year. So, Ian, let me ask you this. Yeah. Um, we disagree on on the, the crime thing. Um, I think this is a I, I think this there are crimes that were committed, um, but not necessarily by the president. But if he did commit them, I want to know them. I want to hear all of the evidence. I want it fair. Uh, and I want it out in the open. And if he did, he's out. Or if anybody else did, um, do you think that we live in a world that uh, that Washington will give us a fair trial and call everyone to the witness stand? Oh, no. No, 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 of course not. Because, I mean, again, you know, the Democrats, this is a party line. Right. The vote was a party line vote. And uh, in the Senate, the same thing's going to happen with the Republicans. I mean, so there's no possibility that impeachment could proceed in the way that our founding fathers had intended it to. But doesn't that hurt? Impeachment is clearly broken as a process. Right. And doesn't this this breakdown, I think, is happening in Washington I'm not sure that it is happening as much as it in in the middle of America um, and the non-political America. I'm not sure that it's happening as strong as it is on TV and in Washington. I think both Democrats and Republicans see this entire thing as this. But neither side is being right here. Uh, again, I, I think that the uh, sclerotic partisanship the capture of our political process by big money and special interests on both sides um, has led to an awful lot of angry people. Yeah. A lot of Americans that feel that the system is broken, that it's disenfranchised, that it's rigged. And, and you know, that, that is about Washington. It is about the political system. But, you know, there was a story last year that one piece of data that, I mean, I think articulated this for me, that had nothing to do with Washington, but, my God, it feels the same way for everyone, which is, uh, you know, around this... Uh, varsity blues scandal with all the parents, the wealthy parents buying their way in the universities. So it turned out that last year in Greenwich, Connecticut, 50% of the high schoolers taking the SAT, 50% of them had um, notes from psychologists allowing them to take the test unmonitored over two days as opposed to four hours. Oh, my gosh. And I mean, so you talk about the average American. Right. The average American looks at that and they say, yep, exactly. That's the problem. I knew it. I can't do a damn thing. I mean, I'm powerless. These people are screwing me. And uh, and so is that Washington? Well, Washington is complicit, but it's more than just Washington. We can't say it's just Washington, the media. I agree. It's not right. I agree. It's not fair. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, China. Uh, What's coming our way with 
China because China is not Iraq. I mean, we're not right. you know, we're not going to be able to we're not going to be able to uh, do anything with China and have them react the same way. But they seem to really be hurting by these uh, sanctions. What's coming our way? Well, I like the way you put that because, you know, I mean, Trump, his two of his biggest foreign policy wins have been the same basic strategy. They've been what he just did with Iran and then what he did with Mexico when he said, I'm going to destroy your economy. <laughs> Literally, your head's going to spin if you don't actually tighten up the borders. In both cases, Trump's like this guy at the poker table with a massive stack of chips in front of him. It doesn't really matter if he's holding a 2-9 or a pocket aces. <laughs> he just put all of his chips in and you're going to fold. Right. Right. But China is not going to fold. Right. China's ability to say no to the United States is actually quite robust. And so we are going to get this deal signed on January 15th, this phase one trade deal. The Chinese are sending Lu He uh, to Washington, D.C., the lead trade negotiator, and it'll get signed and the markets will be pleased and tariffs, some tariffs will be reduced as a consequence. But that's as far as it goes, in my view, Glenn. Uh, this year, we're going to have U.S.-China relations uh, deteriorate on a host of fronts. We've got this woman from Huawei that we haven't been talking about for months, but she's about to go through her extradition hearing in Canada in just a couple weeks' time, the week after uh, the Phase 1 deal is signed. That's much more meaningful for the Chinese uh, than the Phase 1 deal, if you talk to their leaders. you got Taiwanese elections this weekend going to move in a more nationalist direction on the back of their solidarity with the demonstrators in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, uh, the Chinese just appointed um, a, a new liaison uh, to manage the region, much more hardline and senior than the one they had previously appointed. That's clearly not moving in any good direction. You've got the Uyghurs, um, the ethnic minority, Muslim minority, 1.5 million of them in re-education camps and forced labor inside China and Congress bipartisan, believe it or not, one of the few things that they agree on in Congress right now is we need a harder line policy on China. And Trump signed it, even though he didn't really want to, because he thought it might screw up his trade deal. So, I mean, I think on all of these different issues, the U.S.-China relationship, the world's two largest economies in the world, are actually heading towards more confrontation this year. And do you see that becoming uh, um, a Cold War kind of scenario, or... I mean, you know, if if Hong Kong falls, Taiwan is next. And do we just let that happen? Or is it a Cold War or a hot war possibility that is on the horizon in the years to come? We're not going to intervene in Hong Kong uh, at all. And I think we're still very far from a military confrontation over Taiwan or over the South China Sea, for example, where we all have a lot of military assets and territories contested. But there is a Cold War that's already here when we talk about technology uh, and and even the language that Xi Jinping uses, this idea of a long march that they are uh, now on in uh, building AI supremacy by 2030. The Chinese have decided to decouple their technology systems, their algorithms, their big data, their cloud from that of the United States. And, you know, if you listen to Bill Gates or Steve Pinker or any of the people that are more optimistic about the future of the world, the reason they give you for that optimism fundamentally is globalization. It's because ideas and people and goods and services have moved faster and faster across borders over the last generations, right. uh, really post-World War II, right? And suddenly... 
we're taking a very significant step in the other direction. For the first time, really, in your and my lifetimes, we're seeing that happen, um, where um, the, the, the future of the global economy is being divided into two a U.S. sphere and a Chinese sphere. Um, and uh, and that clearly, that does have elements of real Cold War because in, in trade, we can fight with the Chinese, but ultimately we do want to trade more with them. They want to trade more with us. They want to buy more treasuries. We want their economy to succeed because it's good for us. Mm-hmm. When we decouple our tech systems from each other, we want their tech system to fail. It becomes a security-type competition between the two. And so for me, when I think about Cold War, it's when two major powers literally are, are pushing for the collapse the of the other. Yeah. The collapse of the other. That, and, and I think that's the definition. I think that's where we now are in technology. We weren't there a year ago. We were heading in that direction, but we're there now. Ian Bremmer, political scientist, author of Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism uh, and His Top Risks for 2020. It's a fascinating uh, read. You can uh, you can find it at ianbremmer.com. You can also follow him at Ian Bremmer. Uh, thank you so much, Ian. Appreciate it. Always good to be with you, Glenn. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck Program. Even if you are one of those people that, you know, work on roofs in Phoenix in the summer or you are a uh, construction worker or digging ditches for a living, I think you will agree with me that being a, uh, a an American political uh, a scientist and a professor that believes in God and the founding of our nation and you're you're centered in a university in Oregon. I might, I might at times think he has a, a a worse job than the guy on the roof in the in the middle of uh, summer in Phoenix. His name is Mark David Hall. He's a political science professor at George Fox University. His research and writing focuses on American political theory and the relationship between religion and politics. He is not uh, afraid to say. Uh, in fact, he's published a new book called "Did America Have a Christian uh, Founding." The answer to that is absolutely yes, it did. Yeah. Um, the, how did this get so distorted over the years? When did this really start to people now believe that our our founders were deists, but a deist believes that there is a God, but he's like a watchmaker and he built the watch, set the watch, and now he doesn't he doesn't care. He has nothing to do with it anymore. But our founders, all of their Washington. He writes about miracles. He writes about divine providence. How is that? How is that misunderstood? You know, that's a great question. I think these debates began in the 19th century, but really in the 20th century, when we started getting a bunch of secular, progressive academics, they just wrote book after book saying most of the founders were deists. They created a godless constitution. They wanted a wall of separation between church and state, and they just kept repeating these same lines so many times that people have come to believe it's true. So where was our founding? Was our founding in uh, Jamestown or was our founding in, in uh, Plymouth? That's a great question. So I um, begin by looking at three different possibilities. One is the early colonial settlements. And if that's what we mean by founding, then I think indisputably we had a Christian founding. The Puritans came here, of course, to create Christian commonwealths. 
But even if you look to the South, the, the Virginia laws of 1610 say everyone must go to church, blasphemy will be punished by death, and so forth. So I think all the early colonial settlements mm-hmm. were very um, concerned with the things of God. When you move up to what we usually think about, the late 18th century, the War for American Independence, the creation of a constitutional order, there the case becomes a little more difficult. So most of my book focuses, in fact, on the late 18th century. So um, where did that come from and what were we based on? What were they really trying to do? Well, that's a great way of phrasing the question. Sometimes people look at this and they say, okay, what I want to do is argue that all of America's founders were good, godly, pious Christians. <laughs> I don't take that approach. First of all, we know some of them were heretics. The Jefferson and Adams and Franklin departed from the, the, the basic tenets of Orthodox Christianity. But then in many cases, we simply do not have the records. We might know that someone was a member of this church, maybe even that he attended church, but that really doesn't tell us much about his heart mm-hmm. or about even his orthodoxy. Right. So what I look at instead is the ideas that influence the American founders. And I argue that they were influenced by Christian ideas or ideas developed in the Christian tradition of re- re- political reflection. And they drew from these ideas when they broke from Great Britain, when they created our constitutional order. And so therefore, America had a Christian founding. Do you believe in the covenant? Do you believe that there was a covenant made in, in Plymouth and one with Washington and, and Lincoln? Oh, I don't imagine how you could look at America's founding from the early colonial settlements to the late 18th century without understanding the importance of covenants. These folks all believed in the importance of covenant. A covenant, of course, is an, is an agreement between two parties with God as a witness. And these folks almost solely thought in terms of covenants um, the May, from the Mayflower Compact on really to the late right. 18th century and then into the present day. And what does that mean? What, what makes that different than a contract? I think a, a contract, of course, still should be binding. But the way we treat contracts, you know, if you're yeah. a football player with a good season, um, you might throw your contract out the window and renegotiate. Right. The idea of a covenant, a marriage is a great example, right? Right. When you join, when a man joins with a woman, you make a promise before the eyes of God. And really this, this thing should not be ripped asunder, or at least it's a very, very serious thing right. before one would even contemplate breaking that and, covenant. And so when our pilgrims came— um, I'm fascinated. I've just found an old map um, that was uh, made by the uh, Librarian of Congress in, I think, 1870 or 1865. And it was it was the roots of Jamestown that brought slavery and uh, brought um, corruption and um, and division And the Pilgrims founding and that tree gave us, you know, uh, humility and honor, et cetera, et cetera. And it's my understanding that they were arguing back and forth before the Civil War, which which one are we? And I think we're having that same argument now, aren't we? I think there's a lot of truth in that, although I do argue and push back a little bit that I think the southern colonies we're more concerned with the things of God than oftentimes 19th and 20th century historians give them credit for being. But indisputably, New England was the center of American intellectual life. Our best colleges were there. Uh, many of our best leaders came from there. And I think you cannot understand America, as Alexis de Tocqueville um, found when he came to America in the right. 1830s, without understanding the Puritan influence. So we're more broadly, the Reformed or the Calvinist influence. And the arguments that even we have today were happening back then just on different topics. Theirs was slavery. But our our founders get such a bad rap. 
many of our founders were religiously bound to end slavery. That's exactly right. In the initial draft of this book, I addressed that briefly in the conclusion. And my publisher and I agreed to pull that section out. And I'll have a sequel to this book coming out that will have a whole chapter on the founders and slavery. And I think it's, you know, we need to be critical of our own tradition. Sure. And we can be critical of slavery. It was a horrible, unjust institution. Well, you're exactly right. Many founders were coming to recognize that it's incompatible with the basic Christian idea that all humans are created in the imago dei, the image of God. Many were already working for its abolition. Many states voluntarily abolished slavery between 1776 and 1804. The the direction was definitely heading um, towards abolitionism. Unfortunately, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin and gave slavery a lease on life. So um, if the founders could come back, I've always believed that the founders would come back and they would say, huh, so how long did the Constitution last? Because I, I don't think they'd recognize us now at all. Do you think that they would be, uh, how would they react today? They would be absolutely flabbergasted. I think since the 1930s, uh, of course, the um, Congress and the Supreme Court have allowed federalism to be tossed out the window. The national government can pretty much do anything at once. I think literally all the founders, with the possible exception of Alexander Hamilton and James Wilson, would say, this is insane. You are giving far too much power to the national government. We must rein things in. Things like education and the punishing of crimes and the promotion of virtue, these things belong at the state level or the local level. The national government should have nothing to do with these things. Do you see us turning around? As a historian, what's it going to take to turn us around? You know, I tend to be an optimist, and I'm not very happy with the direction we've been heading since the 1930s, but but I'm hopeful. And one of the things I do in this book is I say that we need to look at the basic principles that motivated America's founders, and this should encourage us to return, maybe slowly. I'm a Burkean conservative, so I would say we don't want to overturn things uh, tomorrow, but slowly and surely we should start uh, turning things back to the states. And then, of course, even more importantly, Americans should turn back to God. And I, I think that's where real hope lies. Do we make it without that? Could we become Europe and still be America? You know, that is an excellent question. I, I think America's constitutional order does assume, for instance, that humans are sinful. And so we have important checks on power, including power checks that remain today. And so um, it, it's an open question in my mind. But for sure, America's founders embrace a syllogism that, syllogism that if you're to have a Republican form of government, you must have a moral people. And if you're to have a moral people, you must have a religious people. And by religion, they all meant Christianity. There's no question about that historically. Uh, Mark David Hall, good luck uh, surviving uh, Oregon. Uh, Mark David Hall, the author of a, a new book that everyone should have in their library, Did America Have a Christian Founding? It is answered. Uh, it's a legitimate question and answered by Mark David Hall. You can find him at his website at markdavidhall.org. Again, the name of the book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. The Blaze Radio Network. On Demand.